0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles now and we'll open them to First Thessalonians chapter 5, and also if you will... Find Revelation chapter 20, 1 Thessalonians 5 and Revelation chapter 20. The beginning of chapter 5 in 1 Thessalonians has been our theme through many weeks of study as we are considering the biblical doctrine of eschatology. I think uh, most of you are good Bible students, so you understand the word that eschatology is the study, the doctrine of the events and the methods by which. God will bring this world and human history in this world to its close. And for most of our many series, we've considered the apostles' dreadful warning about God's wrath in these first few verses, his retribution on the sinful world, that a day of reckoning is coming when all will stand before God and will give an account of their lives. In Daniel chapter 10, or 12 rather, there is a Summation of the end given in a few verses where the prophet Daniel said, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time, and at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. There the prophet wrote that there is a time coming that the world has never seen, and this world will not go out easily, The prophet says that God's people will be delivered. He says those whose names are written in the book of life before the world began, they will escape this day of judgment. But others who are unbelievers will not escape, they will be raised to everlasting shame and contempt. Now, in Daniel chapter 12, there is much that is hidden in those white spaces between the verses because we know by reading the New Testament that there's the rapture of the church that occurs during this time. There are seven years of tribulation that follow. There is a righteous kingdom that lasts for 1,000 years. And then comes the judgment of the lost when unbelievers stand before the great white throne. Now, in our text of 1 Thessalonians 5, the apostle wrote very briefly on the subject. He says, But of the time and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly... That the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety. Then sudden destruction cometh upon them. As travail upon a woman with child. And they shall not escape. Now the last part. The last phrase in verse number three. Is the part that concerns us today. They shall not escape. The consequences of sin are inescapable. There none That will elude the day of wrath if they do not believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, if you would, I'd like for us to turn our attention to Revelation chapter 20. And we are working our way towards the close of the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's a, a time that's terrible for unbelievers. And what happens to unbelievers at the judgment is our discussion for today judgment comes upon the physical world that we've seen in the tribulation that we've talked about and the great conflagration that comes at the end of the world but there's also a judgment on the people of the world not just the physical world itself but there is judgment that comes on the people where everyone receives their just deserts for sins they have committed against God now if you look in uh, verse 11 of Revelation 20 here is John's vision And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. John said, I saw a great white throne. And this great white throne that John speaks of is the throne of judgment. Now, our last study, which was a couple of weeks ago, we contrasted uh, thrones that we find in Revelation. Mainly, we contrasted the emerald throne, the, the throne of God in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, to this white throne that Paul sees in this passage, or rather John sees in the passage Now, I'd like for us to uh, just get a brief review, since it's been a couple of weeks since we talked about this. Point number one in our outline was the contrast of the thrones. There are several thrones that are mentioned in Revelation. The the others are thrones from which God's people rule. But the highest throne that we find in the book of Revelation is the Emerald Throne. And this is a, a throne that is reflected in a sea of glass where men and angels fall before Jesus Christ in holy worship, and their voices go up in a resounding chorus as they repeat over and over, Worthy is the Lamb. This is the throne of highest glory. This is where the holiness of God is always displayed. I believe it's the throne that's described in Isaiah chapter 6 where seraphim, these angels of God, continually echo this, this, this phrase, holy, holy, holy. And so this emerald throne, this is the place where the people of God worship Him forever and forever. And in comparison to that, the throne that we consider now is a place of reverence, but it's not a place of reveling in peace and happiness and in the affections of God. No, instead, this is a throne that is frightening. It's a throne of judgment where all who stand there know that they will be consigned to the awful pit of a burning hell. None of the redeemed are at this throne. These are the lost. These are wicked men and women who are unbelievers. And they don't come to this throne to worship God. But they must bow. They must bow before Him knowing That the righteous God is about to pronounce their sentence of doom. And they must bow before Him and acknowledge His perfect justice. Now the throne is called a great throne because of its significance. It is final. There is no appeal here. It is a weighty judgment. The judgment rendered fixes the state of eternal punishment forever. And so the consequences... Of this throne are abject hopelessness and separation of God forever, from God forever. Its consequences are the torments of hell. This throne is not the emerald throne. It is the white throne. White stands for purity. It stands for holiness and righteousness. But there are none who stand before it who are pure, holy, and righteous. There are no mistakes that are made at this judgment. There's no one who stands here and pleads his innocence and has any proof that they should be acquitted. But there are words that echo throughout the chamber. There is none righteous, no, not one. In this assembly there is none that has anything but sin upon them. There is no righteousness there. And God sees that sin and God judges them for their sins. Now the contrast between the emerald throne and the white throne are the difference between life and death. It's the difference of being in the presence of God forever and separation from God forever. You know, you'll meet many people who believe that they can live without God. They believe, oh, God is of no consequence to me. God doesn't mean anything to me. But they'll see that the God that they mocked, the one who gives life and breath and all good things, it's also the God who takes all of that away. Well, now we want to continue our study of the passage as we examine verse number 12 of Revelation 20. This is the call to judgment. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. John said, I saw the small and the great. Now, small and great, that signifies a wide range of people that will be there. You know, often you'll hear uh, folks quote Acts 10, verse 34, which says that God is no respecter of persons. And and they take that verse uh, out of the context or, or they misapply the meaning of it to say that God is indiscriminate in salvation so that salvation is equally opportunistic for all that sounds like a very neat concept, it, it has a certain ring of truth to it, but it's not the whole truth. Because obviously if the opportunity uh, is the gauge of respect, opportunity to hear the gospel is the gauge of respect with God, then most of the world doesn't hear, and most of the world doesn't have equal opportunity to hear of Christ. So the meaning of this phrase, that God is no respecter of persons, is that God doesn't care who you are. God doesn't care what you are according to worldly standards. He doesn't respect your person for your accomplishments in his dealings with you in the matters of sin and salvation. And he never calls anyone to salvation because he investigated the future to see what they would do or what they would become. Neither is God a respecter of persons in judgment. Now there are some who believe that the wealthy are given greater consideration. The Jews believed that wealth was a sign of God's favor and therefore the wealthy were assured of their place in God's kingdom. But then on the other hand, there are those who say that salvation is for those who are not wealthy. They, they say it's for the poor, that to endure poverty, to take a vow of poverty, that is considered to be better and that receives a greater commendation from God. In fact, Roman Catholicism has, has long misinterpreted the first beatitude Blessed are the poor in spirit to mean that a vow of poverty merits some sort of credit towards heaven. But God does not care about material wealth. God doesn't care what you have. What you have or what you don't have is of no consequence to Him. Because everything compared to Him and His wealth is all poverty. All of us are, are beaten down compared to God. Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos have nothing compared to God. And so God tells us not to invest in the pursuit of corruptible worldly riches. And this is why we could never preach a gospel of prosperity. Because folks, God simply does not care what you have in this world. He gives life and breath and all things. And what you have is what God intends for you to have. So we're not to pursue worldly riches. Because that's nothing to God. That doesn't count with God. So he says the small and the great, both the insignificant and the influential, will stand before God. The rich, with all of their privileges, will be there. And the poor that have none will also be there. And understand this, that everything is beneath God, so far beneath God that the difference between the poor and the wealthy on his scale is the difference between a neutron and a proton. Now, Have you considered that whether you live in a cardboard box underneath a bridge or whether you live in Hearst Castle overlooking the Pacific Ocean, God has no respect for either. What you believe about Jesus Christ is all that matters. God does not judge according to the bank account. Now in verse number 13, we learn where all of these people are from that stand before God. God. Now, of course, none that are here are alive in their in their mortal bodies. These are all the dead. All of them dead by some means or another. None of them have been translated out of the world as a living soul. And so you see in the text where they're from. It says the sea gave up the dead. That is, of course, those that died at sea. The sea gave up the dead. Death gave up the dead. That is, those that are in the graves. All the graves are opened up. Hell delivered up the dead. Hell are those that are waiting for the final judgment. So these are the sources of the dead and what it shows is that physical bodies will be raised to stand before God. It's all inclusive that all unbelievers will come to this judgment. So it doesn't matter who they are or where they are, their bodies will be raised. Now, we saw that in Daniel chapter 12, that they are raised to everlasting contempt. Now, Jesus said this about the resurrection in John 5, 29. He said, and they shall come forth, they that have done good, unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil, unto the resurrection of damnation. And then if you look at verse number 5 in our text, you'll see this comment. It says, the rest of the dead live not until the thousand years were finished, And in verse number 6, it says this resurrection ends in the second death. Now, we notice again that verse 13 says that hell gave up the dead that were in it. Now, I, it's not our purpose today to explore the subject of hell. But I want you to note that when a person dies without Christ, immediately upon death, their soul goes into the torments of hell. The soul is given some sort of a temporary body that can suffer until the resurrection of the physical body. And so that temporary body suffers until it's called up for judgment. And then when that happens, the temporary body is terminated and the soul returns to the physical body that's just been raised. And so just as... Believers need their bodies changed to enjoy life in heaven, so the bodies of unbelievers need to be changed to suffer endlessly in the torments of the burning lake of fire of hell. And so there they suffer endlessly without the destruction of their bodies. Now you think about all of these people that are in hell and how they appear before God, and you wonder, what does that resurrected body, what does that body in hell look like? How does it appear? Oh, the saved have beautiful bodies, they have perfect bodies, they have glorious bodies made like the Lord Jesus Christ. But what will the bodies of the damned be like? I don't know. But I think maybe if you watch zombie movies, maybe they look something like that. I mean, I can't imagine that what God would do is fix their bodies and beautify them so they look like fashion models. Death warmed over, perhaps. Maybe that's how you would describe their body. You know, there are many people who are fixated with their looks. Hollywood movie stars, the advertisements that you see, the cosmetic industry is worth multiple billions of dollars, and there are many, many people that are very, very concerned about how they looked. And so I think that a bonus torment of hell will be some people who cared so much about what the physical body looks like and how they will be affected by the ugliness of that place. That they have an ugly, sinful body that goes into the grave. And there it corrupts. And who can imagine that that body would come out looking better. Death and decay wreak havoc on the body. But whatever that body is, and the Bible doesn't really describe, us, describe it for us. Uh, it's made suitable for the eternal torments of, of the eternal lake of fire. And so in that lake, it burns and it burns and it burns, but it's never destroyed. And so for all of eternity, that body suffers without relief. And the important point found in verse number 13 is that punishment is all-inclusive for unbelievers, that none will escape. Well, that brings us to the reason that none will escape. Now remember, it's the great and terrible day of the Lord. Paul said, none will escape. Why? Well, they won't escape because of our third point, the criteria for judgment. Now, the last part of verse number 12 says the dead were judged. And you might underline this part. If you write in your Bible, underline it. They are judged how? According to their works. And at the end of verse 13, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. We are not saved by our works Because there are none of them that are good. We are condemned by our works. Because there are none of them that are good. They are judged by their works. And God has a perfect accounting of them all. Now if you're a Christian. You can thank God for many reasons. But especially for this. That God had a record of all your evil works. And and, and mind that. God had a record of your evil works. But he doesn't have them any longer. Your sins... Have been removed. When you trusted in Jesus Christ. The record of your sins was purged. He had a record of all of your evil deeds. But they were all transferred to Jesus Christ. Who suffered for those sins on the cross. He paid the debt that you should pay. And if he hadn't paid that for you. Then you would find yourself right here in this scene. In Revelation chapter 20. Standing naked without righteousness before the holy God. God keeps books. He's the perfect bookkeeper. There's a record of your first breath until the last one that you expire. He is the Alpha and Omega record keeper. He keeps a record of the beginning and the end and everything in between. And your life is in his books. All of your life is in his books. And if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, none of that goes away. Now here's a very unsettling prospect. God doesn't intend to keep any of this information in his books secret. Every motive, every thought, every deed will be made public. I'll set aside for just a moment the fiery punishment that uh, how awful that will be. What will it be like to have everything that you've thought, everything that you've done exposed? We do some bad stuff, don't we? What about our twisted thoughts that precede the things that we do? You know, some of those thoughts are never acted on. But those sinful, perverted thoughts are kept in a record. Every thought that you've thought is in the record. God has a record of all of that. A couple of years ago, there was a prominent teacher and theologian in Reformed circles who was caught up in the Ashley Madison website scandal... And it was found out that he had signed up on this website to solicit internet sex. And I can't imagine the embarrassment when that website was hacked and it came out that this famous preacher was a part of that and that he had had been on this website. I mentioned uh, some time ago a speaker at the Shepherds Conference who was exposed because he had an affair with a woman in his congregation. And if you look throughout churches... In our country, you'll find many such scandals that go on, and they are embarrassing, and they are shameful. And I don't know what keeps people from crawling under a rock somewhere and never coming out when these things are found out, But, but we see that even some of them still continue in ministry. And we have to ask the question, are these people truly Christian? Well, this judgment will find that out. And some are very confused about judgment. What criteria does God use? Is it a comparative judgment? Is it relative so that people are compared to each other and the better fare because they're better? Is it a balanced judgment? I mean, does God put the good and the bad in a scale and then decide, are you good enough? Do the good deeds outweigh the bad? What is the standard of judgment? Well, let's talk about that. It is a righteous standard. The standard of judgment is a righteous standard. No one is judged compared to what others have done. And the standard of judgment is just not other people. And it seems like this is the very first thing that we want to do. We want to justify ourselves in our sins by comparing ourselves to those that we think have done worse than we've done. When a child disobeys, what do they say? The first thing, well, sister did this or brother did that. You know, my my daughter's children have six others to choose from that they think did worse than them. And that might be an advantage if that was a valid excuse. And so sometimes when they're caught, they just say, well, everybody was doing it. You know, I thought of that at times as I was traveling down I-5 to San Diego to see our grandkids. Uh, If the police stopped me, I'd say, well, I was just keeping up with traffic. Everybody was speeding and that probably won't work because he needs me to be an example to others. You get pulled over to the side of the road, what does everybody do? They slow down to look. So he's not, going to, he's not going to let me go. The standard is not what everybody else does. It doesn't matter if everybody else is speeding. When our congressmen kill babies, vote to kill babies, they're not going to escape judgment because everybody else voted for it. They're not going to escape because the public wanted it. No, they're going to give... An account for being accomplices to murder. They should legislate rightly as an example to those who won't. And then there's this other misconception uh, I mentioned just a moment ago of, uh, of weighing our good deeds against the bad. Every form of religion, did you know this? Every form of religion but the true teaches this, that judgment is according to good deeds. If you ask people, do you think that you'll go to heaven? And rarely do you hear anything other than, I think so. I've done more good things than bad. I mean, overall, I'm just a pretty good person. Works religion always weighs itself against how much evil that others do and how much good that self has done. But just how good am I? Paul addressed a a different issue in 2 Corinthians I mentioned it, rather it's 1 Corinthians. I mentioned this just a moment ago before the scripture reading. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, he said, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. That was actually a comment about false teachers who thought that they were intellectually superior to the apostles. So they patted themselves on the back and they measured their knowledge among themselves. John Gill commented on this passage and said, "...they consulted themselves and measured and compared themselves with themselves, which was acting just a foolish part, as if a dwarf was to measure himself not with any kind of measure or with another person, but with himself, only surveying himself and his own dimensions, and fancies himself a giant." John Gill lived 300 years ago, and he might not have been 21st century P.C., But nonetheless, that point is taken. People are like this about sin. If you make yourself the standard, you'll always be right. Some preachers are that way. They fancy themselves to be great theologians. How? By comparing themselves to other preachers who don't know anything more than them. Now the point is, if you judge yourself, you'll always look good. But when you do, you're judging by the wrong criteria. What is the right standard? Well, Jesus gave it in Matthew 5, 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. God does not compare you to others. He compares you to Him. How do you measure up compared to God? You see, the judgment is to take everything that you've done in your life and compare it to what Jesus did in His life. Isn't that interesting? You're not judged based upon what God the Father in heaven does and His eternal acts. No, you're judged upon the life of Christ and how He became flesh and lived as a man just as you are a human being living on this earth. You are judged for how you face temptation and sin and how you overcome it just as Jesus faced temptation and sin and overcame it. And what do you discover by that comparison? Well, you discover that Jesus overcame it all. There was no sin in his life. But as you look at your own life, you find you overcame none of it. Even if you claim that you you did right, he's always going to look at the motive that's behind it. Then he takes us right back to the word where he says in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Wonderful text, but it's a huge problem. Because there are none that are pure in heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, "...the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know it?" And that's the reason that no one can come to Christ before his heart is regenerated. Your heart is wicked. And this is what God sees when He compares it to what you should be. Jesus Christ is what man should be. Only Jesus is what man should be. And so in order to escape judgment... God must see you as he sees his own son. Now when God says there is none righteous, no, not one. Does that mean, well, there's nobody in the world that ever did a good thing? No, that's not it. It means that everything that you do falls short of his standard. The standard is the righteousness of Christ. And so when God opens the books, he finds none at the great white throne that meets this standard. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Now let me give you three areas in which people at the great white throne fail to meet the standard. Now we see in the text that first they failed in deeds. Is God's standard hard to live by? Well, consider it's not only the things that you do, it's the things that you don't do. In Galatians 3 verse 10, it says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone, listen, that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. So everything that God says you must do, you must do, and you must do it perfectly. Perfectly. Someone said there's over 5,000 commandments in the Bible. I don't know. But I do know there's the big ten and there isn't anyone who keeps them perfectly. I mean, you just choose one of the commandments and see how well you do. I think for some people, they may believe that the easiest commandment, they could say, "I, I keep this commandment, would be the one that says, honor your father and your mother. Honor your father and your mother. Is there any time in your life that you disobeyed your parents? And you say, well, sure, of course. I mean, all children do this. All children disobey their parents. But that was a long time ago. I'm an adult. I'm grown. I, I, I did that when as a child, but now I always respect my parents. Well, what are you going to do about the times that you didn't? What if a murderer is asked, did you kill anyone? And he says, yes, but that was a long time ago. I don't kill people anymore. Well, trust me, the police are going to come looking you know, and say, where are all the bodies? doesn't make any difference how long ago it was. Did you pay for the crime? That's the important thing. See, this is what we think. We think that time and space and severity of crime somehow separates us from the consequences of it. But folks, there is no statute of limitations with God. You stand in His courtroom, every sin is brought up and every sin requires a payment for it. And you are always guilty of sin if you want to know the truth. Every day you sin, you never stop sinning. And so when God puts up the record of judgment, His punishment is, is, is just because the, uh, the crimes were committed. Time means nothing to God. How long ago? How soon ago? Doesn't matter. Because He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. People fail in what they do, and they fail in what they don't do. And I would remind you also that Christians need to remember... That we don't please God based on what we used to do. Where are you now? How do you serve Christ now? Do you satisfy self or God? So first, they fail in their deeds. Secondly, they failed in thoughts. Now let's look at a few scriptures. Genesis 6, 5. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Psalm 94:11 The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man that they are vanity. Proverbs 15:26 The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but the words of the pure are pleasant words. Now, what do the wicked do with the account of their thoughts? How do they escape their thoughts? Well, they don't do what this next verse requires. In Isaiah 55, it says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Jesus said in Matthew 15, For out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. seems that God has an opinion about our thoughts. Jesus clarified that. He said, because the wicked heart, that is the source of all the evils that we do, there is what causes thoughts to become actions. And because God will judge according to our thoughts, don't think that anything that you think doesn't matter. The fellow that sits there and or the woman, man, who sits there and feeds a porn addiction won't escape because they didn't act out their fantasies. No, the heart, the mind, the soul is not going to enter heaven as it is. No one has ever escaped their evil deeds that are born out of an evil heart. So thoughts and deeds are enough to separate us from God forever. Now let's consider that again in relation to those who say that they're Christian. Are you a Christian? Some say that they're believers, but are they? Then why isn't their heart changed? Why aren't their desires changed? Why haven't they stopped doing what they used to do? Now a believer can fall into grievous temptations and sin, but he's not going to stay there. He will hate that sin and he will come to repentance. Repentance. And so we don't believe that people can consistently disobey. Saved people can consistently disobey the commandments. We don't believe that they can persistently reject the church. We don't believe that they can rest on their laurels of the past and talk about their profession or talk about their baptism and say, now I know I'm saved regardless of what I do. Oh, the Christian life is proved by where you are now. Where are you at this moment? Do you persevere in the faith because... Perseverance is the proof of a true profession. What do you think about? What is it that drives you? Does Philippians 4.8 drive you? Whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report. Is that what you're thinking about? That's what the Bible says a Christian thinks about. Christians are people with changed hearts. So what do you think about? People are going to be judged on their thought life. And now thirdly, and listen very carefully, they failed in words. Now, thank God I can look over this congregation and believe that most of you, if not all of you, profess to believe. But even if you've made a profession, you don't want to dismiss a sermon like this and say, Oh, well, all of that stuff's for somebody else. You should already have the point in your mind that you need to be sure of your profession by examining your actions and how they compare to what God says people will be judged for. Some of you, perhaps, will be judged for the filth that comes from your mouth. Some of you may not be Christians and you'll be judged for what you say and what you write. What you write is also your words. Isn't that right? Did you know that Jason... Sitting back there has the ability at this very moment to pull up your Facebook page and project it on the screen. Did you know he can do that? How comfortable would you be if I said, Jason, would you just pull up this person over here's Facebook page and let's, let's have a look and see what's written there. How many of you would crawl under your chair if I did that? You might say, oh, that's not fair. Surely you wouldn't do that. How could you ever think to do that in public? And I would have to ask you, isn't Facebook public? I mean, even if you make your page private, doesn't somebody see that? I mean, what's the point of having the page if nobody sees it? Do you say, but making that public to the church, surely you can't do that. that would, I would be so, so ashamed of what people will see. Well, I'll tell you something. God's not going to be concerned about your dilemma when he makes all the private parts of your life public. What if I had a recording of your last phone conversations? You say, well, I don't have any because nobody ever talks on the phone anymore. Okay, give me your last 25 texts or your tweets or whatever it is. What did you say? Oh, but you're a Christian, aren't you? You have no fear to be found out. Might I settle for you whether God will judge you for what you say? Jesus said in Matthew 12, Oh, generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Every idle word spoken will come into account. The pure in heart will see God. Are you really a Christian? Does your speech show that you are a Christian? What's in your heart is what comes out of your mouth. What's in your heart is the things that you write. And let me say before I close just another word that God will judge me for my words whether I've told you the truth. Some of you use bad language. Some of you speak filth. I was raised in a pastor's home. I never heard my mom and dad curse. I never heard filthy slang. I grew up without that, and so that never became a part of my vocabulary. I just never talked like that. But let me ask you about your children. Can they say the same about you, that they never hear filthy words come from your mouth? You know, know, your children imitate you. Filthy talk is for the ignorant who don't have enough vocabulary to sound intelligent. Filthy talk comes from a filthy heart. Didn't Jesus say that? We just read it. So if you'll be judged by your words, then why don't you talk like Christ? You are a Christian, right? Why don't you talk like Christ? And then there's so much more to be said about, about idle words and, and what, the, what all that is. I mean, it's, it's more than just the, the mindless things we say. It's the hurtful things that we say to others. It's the gossip that we carry on with. It's the offensive things. It's the inappropriate things. It's the insensitive words about others. Who are God's people? And that's a very good question, in it, not it? Because I think that some people that we thought are God's people and claim to be God's people are going to be at the great white throne judgment. They exchange their church pews for a courtroom pew. And I pray that you're not one of them. Where do you stand with God? Do you persevere in the faith? Or are you a pretender to the faith? Have you fooled yourself? Remember the criteria for judgment. And we're going to take up more next time. If you aren't a believer, I've told you according to God's Word what you will face. Jesus Christ and His perfect life, that is the standard of judgment. And there's only one way that you can meet that standard. And that is to repent of your sins, place your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, and then have His perfect righteousness transferred to you so that when God sees you, all that He sees is Jesus Christ. No unbeliever will escape. Jesus is the only way out of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. How solemn are the words of your, of your holy scriptures, the warnings that are here, the judgment that's coming. We can't deny what your word says. And we know what we are in our hearts. We know how we act. We know what we do. We know what we've said We know what we thought, and so do you. Lord, help us not to fool ourselves if we think that we are Christians, but there is no change taking place in our heart. And as I stand before this crowd today, I know again that most likely I may be preaching to all Christians, or at least all claim to be, but are we truly? Has that change taken place? Lord, I pray that you'd help us to examine our hearts. And this, this sermon is not just for unbelievers, but it's for the assurance of Christians. How can I know that I'm truly saved? Well, there's a change in behavior. There's a change in speech. There's a change in thoughts. If I know Christ, help us to examine ourselves today. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church,